All right, everybody got today's lesson. We're finishing last week. Didn't want to rush it. Some things I want to emphasize today that I didn't have time last week, and we're in chapter 15. We've looked at the seventh I am. I am the true vine. We've talked about all the analogies in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is full of analogies that Israel is the vineyard, that Israel is a fig tree, that Israel is an olive tree, all these uh, agricultural metaphors that the people would have understood. And Jesus is teaching his disciples that he is the true vine and that all, all fruit comes from him and being in union with him. We talked about the vine dresser. The vine dresser is the father. And the father distinguishes between those branches who are truly his and those branches who are truly not his. And he cuts out the branches that aren't his, those that are the tares among the wheat, those who... Uh, who's the word has, has, has landed on various stages of their hearts, and some of them are stony hearts, some of them are thorny hearts, some of them are shallow ground. The Father distinguishes between those who are His and those who aren't, and so He prunes them, uh, and then he, he cuts them out, and then He prunes His children. We talked about what the pruning is and the effect of the pruning and the goal of the pruning last week, and we talked about that in all great detail. Uh, and so what I want to look at today is, uh, and then we talked about fruit. We talked about the, that uh, the Father is glorified when we produce fruit. And we said that the fruit was, this pen is no bueno. We talked about fruit last week, and this is not much better. And we said that fruit was the, uh, was the uh, many things. It is good works. And that God is is uh, glorified when He produces the good works in us, and we and we carry them out. We talked about praise being a fruit. We talked about the fruit of the Spirit, which would be the inter, the inner man, the goodness, the gentleness, the meekness, the kindness, the faithfulness. All these are, are evidence of of Christ working in us. The work of the Spirit. We talked about that, and of course we know that is, and this isn't going to work either. We talked about that, and that was found in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And then we talked about fruit being evangelism. And we talked about uh, when we are His, it is, our, it is our privilege and it is a mandate for us to share the gospel with men. And, and that gospel is fruit that He bears uh, through our efforts. And uh, we talked about all that last week. And then the last thing we talked about was righteous behavior, and that is the the right way we live our lives, the attitudes of our hearts, the more the morality of our lives. All of these are evidences. These are the fruits that the Holy Spirit bears within us, and we would not be able to bear this fruit obviously without the Holy Spirit within us bearing this because it's not of, of us. Paul said, there's nothing in my flesh that's good and there's no ability in a flesh to do any of these good things and all must be a product of the fruit uh, as the Holy Spirit bears it in us and we're in union with Christ. So we talked about that last week. And now what I want to talk about today, we're in, uh, that'll catch us up pretty good. I'm looking at uh, verse 3 and then we're going to look at a few of the things. Uh, let's look at 15. Uh, let me just read uh, for a second here. <clears throat> verse, I'll start at verse chapter 15, verse 1. I'm the true vine. 
My husband is a vine dresser. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he the Father takes away. And every branch that bears fruits, he the Father prunes, that it may bear more fruit. And we're going to start with today's lesson. You are already clean because of the Word. And so we're going to emphasize the Word today and the Word's effects on us and what the Word does within us in conjunction with the Holy Spirit empowering it. And as we are transformed and renewed by the Word, we're really going to look at that, the, the, the Word's role in our fruit-bearing. Uh, you are already clean because of the Word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do Nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they're burned. If you abide in me, my words abide in you. You'll ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples. As the Father loves me, I've loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and I abide in His love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another. Greater love is no one than this and lays down one's life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants. Servant doesn't know what his master is doing. And I've called you friends for all things I heard from my Father. I've told you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. Whatever you ask in my Father's name, He'll give you these things I command you that you love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world will love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. The servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they don't know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they wouldn't have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done them among the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled which is written in the law. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, the paraclete, whom I have sent to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me and you'll bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. These things I have spoken to you that you shouldn't be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. The time is coming. Whoever kills you will think he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they do not know the Father and they do not know me. But these things I have told you, but when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. So we see this section is going to be ended, and then we're going to talk about the work of the Spirit. But we see the Word's effect. Verse 3, You are already clean because of the Word I've spoken to you. So the first thing I have written down here in the notes is the Word cleans us. The Word cleans us. 
And we have many verses that I love. Let's look at 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3. 3, uh, 16 and 17. We are familiar with these verses. We are familiar with 2 Peter 1, 21. And we are familiar with Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. So listen to this, this word here. And let's talk about how the word clean, clean, cleans us. And we'll look at some of the particulars of it. Who's got 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17? Okay. Okay, so the verse that Sally read, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So we see God inspiring every word. It is given by Him, and He, 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 he manifests His Word to us through the Spirit and through the written Word, and that Word is complete. We don't need any new revelation, and it is, and it is without error, and it is accurate, and it is God-breathed, and it is profitable for. What are the, what are the, what are the things it's profitable for? What did she just read? The first one is? For what? Doctrine means sound teaching. We must, all of the Pauline epistles, Start with doctrine and teaching. And the teaching is fundamental to the practical aspects. We couldn't understand Romans 12 about being conformed to the image of God and yielding our lives as, as instruments of worship, which is our duty as men and women, if we didn't understand that we've been saved by grace and that we have been reconciled to God. We have been have peace through Jesus Christ and that the Spirit lives within us, and we wouldn't know about the struggle. We wouldn't know about these things if we didn't know Romans. So that so the Word is profitable because it gives us sound doctrine. And this sound doctrine keeps us from falling and keeps us from stumbling. And it, and it matures us so we're not... We're not always like we're drowning in this sea of cultural waste that we're in, okay? So it, 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 it teaches us and it gives us a grounding and a foundation and something that we can rely on and hope in and trust in. And that teaching never fails and it never changes. And it's the same. The Word is the same just like Jesus is yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So it's profitable for teaching. What's the next thing it's profitable for? Reproof means conviction. The Word of God, as inspired by His Spirit, what the Word does is it convicts us. And who's got this while we're at it? Somebody look at this one. And look at the metaphor he uses for conviction. And there's an association, I'll get into it in a minute, this convicting work of the Holy Spirit through the Word as it is preparing our heart, as it's showing us our ugliness. Spurgeon used to say, we can't be made well until we know we're sick. And so the great physician comes, and through the work of the Spirit as and through the Word, that Word convicts us. And that's one of the works of the Spirit, which we're going to get into in 16.7 when we get into that next week. So, so how does the Word convict us? Who's got this verse here? 
Yes, Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. I think I'm. I th- either I gave you the wrong verse. No, this is not the verse I wanted to give you. No, no, no. Goodness gracious! No. That's where I'm on 14. Thank you, dear. <laughs> Conviction. Go ahead. I'm so sorry that I'm ignorant. Here we go. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So the Word of God is living and it is a product of God Himself and the mind of God and the heart of God. And that, and that Word comes into our souls and it's like a sword. And it, and it divides, it, it, it goes through the excuses of man. And it pierces the very thoughts of what a man is. And it brings a man to conviction. And it exposes the sin in a man's heart. And it's like it's light that, that, that approaches the darkness and it shines truth into a dark man's heart. And that's the work of the, of the Word as it brings conviction. So it's sharper than a two-edged sword and it's active and it pierces through the thoughts of men and it exposes the darkness of man. Understand that? The Word's effect as it cleanses us. And then we know this verse, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God And we understand that holy men of God spake as they were born along by the Spirit. So all the words of this book are inspired by God's Word, are inspired by God, and they are a product of the Holy Spirit. And it is, they are in union with the Godhead, and He uses His Word to cleanse us. Everybody understand that it's good for teaching and conviction. Anybody have a testimony how God's Word was a sword that convicted you and showed you the need of a Savior? Anybody want to give a quick word? I know you can. The whole book of James. I remember when God got a hold of me. It was a sermon by Bailey Smith. And the name of the sermon was Pitching Your Tent Too Near Sodom. And when he took, when two Nick two, and when he talked about Lot, I was Lot, and I was, I had first camped outside the gate, and I became mayor of the great city of sin. And God used that word, and I remember how broken I was, and I remember, I can remember my repentance before a guy, and the guy was shocked as I went on and on and on. But that's, I can't, I pitched my tent too near Sodom, and I became the mayor of it. I wasn't homosexual, don't get me there wrong with Sodom, but, but, uh, uh, and I just can remember the convicting work of the Spirit and the exposure of it and the piercing of it, and, uh, and I thank Him for that. Yes. I was, uh, 26. I had made a profession at seven and, and, uh, I was raised in the church and, uh, I was a, uh, 
I used to share the gospel with men in drunken condition many times. And I knew all about the truth. But uh, the, the, as he worked in my heart, uh, life changing. Yes, sir. That you didn't have any hope? I didn't know what I was talking about. I tell you, he does it, and he does it in an amazing way. He opens your eyes, and uh, he exposes a hypocrisy. He continues to do so. That's right. It's a lifelong. It's a lifetime. It continues to do it. Good. That word was sharpened David's heart when he confessed his sins and uh, restored the joy of your salvation and all the prayers of David and uh, throughout the Scripture. So it cleans us. And so this word cleans us. So we see that. And, and I could go on and on, but uh, for time's sake. I like verse 2. Number 2. The word's role in our fruit bearing. And we see... Uh, we see that. Go back to John chapter 15. Uh, we see this example of we, verse 3. We see the word cleans us. Look at verse uh, verse 7. Uh, this, the, this, the, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, verse 7. Then we see that also in verse 10. We see the, if you keep my commandments... This is how the Word cleans us. And then in verse 14, we see you are a servant if you do whatever I command you. So as Pastor talked about today, there is a, there is a connection that has to exist between faith and obedience. And if you say you're a follower of His, uh, and you say you believe and trust, it will have to be associated with and accompanied by uh, obedience. So we see that. We see the Word's effect. Second thing we've got is it, it causes us to abide the Word. So it causes us to abide. The word abide is a fascinating word. In the Greek, it's meno, and there's a accent mark over the end. And the word means, and I love the last definition of it, it means it's mentioned ten times in the text. If you see it in verse 4, it's mentioned three times. Abide in me. A branch cannot bear fruit unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. In verse 5, it's mentioned one time. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me. In verse 6, it's mentioned one time. If anyone doesn't abide in me. In verse 7, it's mentioned two times. And I've already read that verse, so I won't read it again. In verse 9, it's mentioned one time. As the Father loves me, I've loved you. Abide in my love. And in verse 10, it's mentioned twice. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in me, just as I kept my Father's commandments and I abide in Him. The word abide, in meno in the Greek, it means to. It means to stay. It means to remain. It means to live and to dwell. And I love this. If you don't get anything out of this, it means to start with and to continue. 
to start with and continue. So there is a point when the Word convicts you and the Word brings faith into your life and the Word gives you ears to hear and you repent and you turn to Him in faith. That is the starting point and the Word has this effect and we start. And there is also a sense that is we continue, the Word not only starts us, but it causes us to endure. If you are in Christ, you will remain in Christ. And you will endure to the end. Because He is the one that began a good work, and He is the one that's going to finish the work. We are to examine ourselves. We're to make sure of our election. But the Word is the causative effect. It is the one, it is what changes us. It is what starts us in faith, and it is what keeps us in faith. The Word. In conjunction, the grace, the Holy Spirit, we understand these things. I love what it says. We do not, we're not the causative effect of our salvation. The Word energized by the Spirit is a causative effect. So this word abide is a word of permanency. I love this word, and it took me a while to spell it, and I think I've probably forgotten. Perpetuity. We remain in perpetuity. In Christ, the means is through the Word as the Spirit energizes it and causes it to be alive in our souls. Perpetuity. So that we cannot fall, we cannot ultimately fail, because He holds on to us. And we don't hold on to Him. He prunes us. He does what He does. But He holds on to us. I love the Casting Crown song. I'm not holding on to Him. He's holding on to me. My, my grace, my salvation is not based upon how I feel, but what the Word of God reveals. Right? So when we get in our disillusioned, discouraged state, when we doubt, when the attempter accuses us and says to us his various things, and you know what they all are. You've heard them a thousand times in your head. We trust the word that he's holding on to us, right? And we will not be snatched out of the Father's hand. The sheep will be brought into this sheepfold. Okay? Perpetuity. We're abiding in Christ. And that abiding is through the Word, through the Holy Spirit. We understand that? Causes us to abide. And that's something we, we glorify Him. Verse 8, the Word's effect is that the Father is glorified. Remember we talked about this last week. The good seed that falls on the good soil, the soil that's prepared by grace... And that soil produces a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. But it is fruit that is evidenced and it is caused by grace. Okay? So the Father is glorified. What else could be the explanation for you about God's grace? And what else could be the reason for these, these evidences produced in your life by the Spirit but Him? And He gets all the glory. And we don't get any of it. So that's how he glorifies himself, is that his children are producing fruit that he's ordained for us to do. And remember we said some 30, all of us have different abilities that he's given us and different gifts that we are accountable to. We're not all Billy Graham. And we're not not going to have thousands of people who he has been 
graced to lead to the Lord. Some of us may have one. Some of us may not have any. But there are other things that God has produced in us that He's glorified. And we bow before Him and say thank you, right? The Father is glorified. We see that. Let's look at number four. This, this, the Word as the Word is, has this role. There is an indistinguishable relationship. Indistinguishable. What do I mean by that? Indistinguishable relationship between Christ and the Word. How would you like to, how do you, what do you think about that? Pardon me? They're merged. In all practical respects, God is a literal, of course Christ is, is God and man, but He speaks the Word, He speaks the Word that His Father has given Him to say, so they're all practically synonymous. And they come from the same mind, they have the same role, the same purposes, so there's an indistinguishable difference between Christ and His Word. We see that in verse 7. If you abide in Me and My words abide in you. Okay, so there's an indistinguishable relationship between Christ and His Word. And I've said this many times, and it's a quote from Andrew Murray. The mark of how much you love God is how much you love His Word. And if you do not love His Word, how can you love God? If you have a relationship with Christ, how can you not be a lover of His Word? And so we pray, you should pray that God would take that Word and that that, He would create a love for that Word in your heart. And He will. And He does. And it is progressive. And as you get older and more dependent on that Word, you will have a deeper love for that Word. You'll meditate on that Word and you will love it And it will become the most important thing in your life. And if you haven't gotten there yet, I trust that He'll bring you there. And uh, I can't imagine how far He's going to continue to bring all of us, right? We lean on that Word. That's the hope. Indistinguishable. So we see this. And there is this great link. There's a great link between the Word... And prayer. There's a great link. Remember, we talked about this. Uh, this isn't a uh, prayer in the in its in its in its in why we have prayer. Prayer is us speaking to God out of a heart of love for Him, and it's because of our relationship to Him. There's a link between the Word and prayer, and we see that in verse uh, seven. We just read in verse sixteen. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should remain, and whatever you ask the Father in my name, He will give you. Prayer is not a license to pray for anything you want because there is a limit to what you should want, and what you should want is based upon your relationship to God. And what you should want should be in accordance with God's Word. And so prayer that is based upon selfishness, carnality, that's based upon avoiding tribulation, avoiding trial, and just things and stuff is not biblical prayer. But prayer that is linked to relationship with Him, 
linked to confessed sin, linked to consistent obedience, linked to His will being done, linked to the good works He ordained you to do. That's the prayer that He talks about in verse 26. Notice He links it to fruit remaining. What you ask the Father in my name, all of these are, it's all, it's, it's all, it's not in a bubble. It's not in a vacuum, but it's all linked together. And so prayer like that, remember we talked about this in, in chapter 14, and we talked about this in the error of some thinking, but uh, verse 12, chapter 14, He believes in me, the works that I do He will do, and greater works than these He will do, because I go to my Father, and whatever you ask in my name I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. This isn't I want a Mercedes Benz. This is, Father, I want you to use me to do the works you've called me to do, and I want you to be glorified in this prayer. It glorifies God that we pray for Sam Boggs. It glorifies that we pray for our children. It glorifies and we ask for Him to work in their hearts because that's how we're to pray, right? And so this isn't a license to pray for silly, selfish things. And we'll see that again in 16 when we talk about this and we'll get in great detail about this. But... uh We'll look about this in 16.23. In that day you'll ask me nothing. I say unto you whatsoever you ask in my Father's name, He will give you until now you haven't asked anything. Ask and you will receive it that your joy may be full. This is going to be foreshadowing of the work of the disciples as they are conduits through which they are reconciling men to God, right? And their role as apostles starting churches, sharing the truth, He's saying, you pray for boldness, and we're going to talk about all that. It's not a, I wish my life was easier. I wish I wasn't going to be martyred. I wish that life wasn't so difficult. That kind of prayer. But it's open my eyes, open hearts, give me boldness. That's the prayer that he's talking about here. And there's a link between the word and the prayer. Comments, questions uh, about that? We'll get into it a little more uh, when we get into chapter 16 and work of the Spirit in our praying. Uh, Look at verse uh, number, where are we at? Six. Commonness. And I love this one. The word effect. There's a commonness. And those of you who are in our Bible study on uh, in Philippians, we know that commonness, commonness, is the koinonia fellowship. It's this fellowship that we have in Christ. We have the same mind as Christ. We have the same purposes. We have the same desires. We have the same wills because Christ has unified that with His people. And so there's a commonness and a fellowship. And we see that in verse, in chapter, uh, 14, 15. Look at verse 12. Listen to this commonness and listen to this fellowship. And then I really want us to, to camp on this word friends the word the word's role in producing this fruit within us as christians there's this commonness and the root of the commonness is is love is love so let me read 12 through 15 again and look at this uh, this is my commandment that you love as i've loved and we've talked about that and what kind of love is that would we say the word was? 
It's agape love. It's the word that is it is that is exclusive to the New Testament. And it is an unselfish, it is a humble, it is a self-giving, sacrificial, patient, not recording wrongs, bearing, believing, hoping, enduring type of love. It is a product of the Holy Spirit and is a gift to us as people. So this is, God calls us to agape, not an eros love, not a brotherly love, more than that, an agape love, family love as sourced from God Himself. So we see this, I've loved one another as I've loved you. Greater love is no man than a man lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I tell you to do, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. I want to chew on this word right here. I want to say lie this word. I want to chew on this word. Have you ever considered what it means to be friends with God? Everybody got this? This is nothing new. But I want some room here for friends. And this is something that's not in your notes, and if you want to add it, you can. Friends. Friend of God. This concept uh, uh, starts in the Old Testament. Uh, let's look at uh, Genesis 18.7. We see this first uh, concept of being a friend of God, and we see it in Abraham. Abraham is is the father of faith. He is our father in faith. He was taken out of his wicked lifestyle in Tehran with his wicked daddy. He was a he was a non-believer. He was a pagan. He was brought out of that by grace. He was given many promises. You remember when he was uh, uh, when when they were. When Abraham was first told about God's intention with Sodom and Gomorrah, remember it was God's intent to use to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of the wickedness within the city, and Abraham uh, begged God to save it for fifty, and then he forty-five, and then he basically went down to ten, and God said He wouldn't destroy the city for ten righteous people. But remember what He told Abraham. Uh, look at eighteen. 17, and this is sort of going to define what a friend is, uh, biblically. Look what he said to Abraham. Then there arose, uh, verse 16, there arose men from there and they looked towards Sodom and Abraham went with them to send them on the way. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed him. So we see this first hint of a friend, and it's Abraham. And this definition of a friend is this: is, is God is going to tell us his mind, and he's going to tell us his detailed thoughts, and he is going to open up to us his will and his motivation and his purposes. So Abraham is a friend of God. And so he wants to tell Abraham about what he's going to do. And so a friend, as this is defined by, and it's defined in John, is, is, is what it says in John. It says, a friend, a servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things I heard from my father, I have made known to you. And so God befriends us who were enemies to him as he reconciles us to himself to further blow your mind. He wants to be a friend of yours. That should 
short circuit our little brain. And he, he demonstrates this by telling us his mind, his thoughts, and his purposes. And he does this through his word. And he desires relationship with us. And he desires intimacy with us. And he many times, remember we looked about comfort last uh, two weeks ago. The word comfort means to whisper uh, in someone's ear. His good graces. So God desires this intimate relationship. That's why He made us. To have intimate relationship with Him. So He tells us His mind, His detailed thoughts, and He wants relationship. Let's look at this chain of, uh, of Abraham. Let's look at uh, Isaiah 41.8. Isaiah, we've got uh, Genesis 18.17. We've got Isaiah 41.8. We have... Second uh, Chronicles 20. So somebody look up Isaiah 41.8. Somebody look up Second Chronicles 20.17. And then someone look up James 2.23. And let's look at this concept of being a friend of God. Who's got Isaiah 41.8? Abraham, my friend. Who's got Second Chronicles 20.17? That was harder. Somebody didn't look that one up. Second Chronicles 20.17. Okay? Oh, have I got another one of those boogers? Let me find it. Second Chronicles 20. What do I got? What did I say? 17. Bound is me. James 2.23. Let me find this one. Somebody look up James 2.23. Okay, you friend of God. Think about your friendships. Tell me how your friendships are cultivated in this earth. Spend time with. Is that any different than our relationship with Father? No. How do we spend time with Him? His Word and prayer. What else about friendships? Your dearest friend, what is one of the one of the dearest things about friendships is this word right here. Trust. You can share with your friend your realness and who you really are in your heart, whether it's warts or not. And you can have confidence that that friend is not going to betray the intimacy that you have with him or her. So within 
friendship and we can have this with God. We trust Him. He tells us the truth about us. We repent and we turn to Him and we give Him the petitions of our heart and He knows us about it. There's an intimacy there that He loves us in spite of us. So there's a trust and a confidence. What else? Your best friend does what for you? What are, you, what are your, some, some things that relate to Him being our friend? Pardon me? Encouragement. A good friend encourages. We know much about friendship in the Scripture. We have Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loveth at all times, right? What does 18, 24 Proverbs say? There is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. What does uh, 27 Proverbs 27, 6 say about uh, 27, 6 and 27, 17? Friendship, worldly friendship as it relates to a relationship with Father and the Son through the Spirit. Who's got 27, 6 and 17? Proverbs. Twenty-seven six. What is a wound of a friend? Tells you the truth. Brutal honesty. You're not nearly as spiritual as you think you are. You have a log in your own eye. We, we, we share this with our true friends. And God our Father shares with us truth. And He wounds us in love so that He encourages us, right? And builds us up. Who's got 17? 26, 17. Well, I hope you sharpen your friend's life. I hope you, are, uh, you sharpen one another. He, of course, obviously is the ultimate one who does that in us and through us and uh, so we see friends that God, Jesus Christ, calls us friends because He reveals to us His purposes and He gives us His mind. He gives us His mind. His Spirit works in us and He gives us His mind. Just think about this week, uh, being a friend of God. He calls you His friend. He desires this between you and Him. And this is how he accomplishes. Anything else about being a friend? Do you have your hand up? I felt it like your friend sympathizes with you for a while and endures your pain. And then a true friend says, so, so now, what are we going to do? What are you going to do now? It's that, that next step of going on. I think that's what God does through his word. He brings us, we, we rely on him, and then now what are you going to do? Now what? Now let's correct this behavior. Now let's change this mindset. Let's renew our minds. Let's set our mind on Christ, not this world thing that you're worried about, trusting in, whatever it is. Now what? Good. Anything else on friends? Great topic. Being a friend of God. Yes. Yes. Tell us. Well, in Galatians 3.26, For you are all sons of God through faith 
and uh, in Galatians 4, 6, because your sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So, you know, he's predestined us to adoption as sons. And we're heirs and joint heirs with Christ. That's right. And that's what that philos or whatever in the Greek is to be a son of God. Wow. Wow. I mean, that brings it even richer and even more full than friendship. Excellent. Excellent thought. That's something we need to chew on. I think we are presently his sons, we have been adopted into his family. He has reconciled him to himself. Yes. As soon as we are adopted into his family, we are his son. Yes. But it's like with our kids, as we grow, as they grow and mature, they become our friends. Maybe it's sort of like that. As you as you grow in your relationship with him, maybe it is. I mean, we're, we're still sons, but we're also friends in that he does all of those things. And at the same time, we're still servants. We're still do losses. We're still slaves. We're still bought by His precious blood. And we do what pleases Him. And we have no rights. We want to please our Master. So not only are we servants, but we're friends. And we're adopted children. Yes. Relationship. If you said you had nothing to be thankful for, He calls us friends. He loves us. We're His adopted children. He tells us what's in His heart and He tells us, don't you want to know what God wants from you? Don't you want to know who God is? This is the only place you get it. In His Word. So we see that. And then uh, point seven I've got. Uh, The Word tells us in chapter 15, verse 5, we see the cause of our salvation is Christ's choosing. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. And then in verse 16, as if he wanted to, he wanted to keep the apostles from getting puffed up. From, from taking this relationship for granted for, for every, even one second, assuming that anything is, is caused by them. He says to them, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. And I have appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. If, if it's just not a reminder that I chose you. I caused you to differ And I have produced fruit in me. He reminds us He 
is the cause. And the last thing I want to see in point eight is is this verse right this this right here. Uh, verse 16, you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. Fruit, as God's word produces it, is, has that word remain, has within it, it has eternal consequence. The fruit that he desires to produce us in us in this world will have eternal ramifications and eternal significance. Isn't that an amazing that He would entrust us with this role, this privilege of using the Word for eternal consequence? That is a very sobering thought. Very sobering thought. So this gospel entrusted to us is has eternal significance, and we are to be obedient and faithful, trust the Spirit. We see that? We see that. And then real quickly, not real quickly, but uh, uh, we see this topic, we're going to be hated by the world. The world hates you. It hated me first before it hated you. And if you're of the world, the world would love I've read that. I don't want to take the time to read it again. The cause of the hatred of us is that they hate Christ. And it says in the Scripture, as we go along here, verse, they hated me without a cause. That that train of thought... Oh, 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 oops. Oops. It is a whiteboard. It does say dry, dry eraser. It's not erasing. I'll hear it. That's better. <laughs> now, this concept, what does it mean you're not of the world, but I have taken you out of the world? What does that mean you're not of the world? What are we? When, we're what? We're abiding in Him. We're not of the world. We were... We came into this world as children of disobedience. Father the devil, right? Dead in trespasses and sin. Aliens of the commonwealth of Israel. Without hope and without God in this world. That's how we came. Blind and dead. But now we're not... That's the world. That's how we come into this. This is terrible. But when he says we're not of the world... He, ha- he says we have a new subsistence and existence. We are now sons. We are now reconciled to Him. We have new origin now, so to speak. We are now of heaven. And so we're not of the world. And so because we're not of the world, we have new desires, new abilities, new wills, and new... Uh, purposes for our life. So he says, "Ye are not of the world. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Why do people hate us? Because we imitate Christ. And the world hates Christ. Why does the world hate Christ? I've got a listing. This is not an exhaustive listing, but it is an idea 
of why the world hates Christ. Look at 7-7. Jesus told them. He told the Jews. He told the leaders of, uh, of the nation of Israel. He told all those who came to see the miracles. Why does the world hate Jesus? And why does the world hate Jesus today? As the pastor said, the, past, the world is good with a infant, helpless baby, Jesus. But what does the world have a problem with? Look at 7-7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Circle it. This is why the world hates Jesus. And why is that? Because Jesus tells people their hearts are wicked. And He tells them that there is sin in their lives and there is separation. And He tells them there is nothing good in their flesh. So He tells them their deeds are evil and men hate that. So we got that in 7-7. Look at 8:44. Can you imagine this boldness and the reaction of what people thought? He tells them their deeds are evil. He tells them this. Look at 8.44. You are of your father the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and doesn't stand in the truth. And there's no truth in him when he speaks a lie. He speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. And you are associated with him and you are just like him. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that on a billboard of your of your church a drive by year of your father the devil? I don't, probably wouldn't get a lot of people come in for that one. He told them their deeds were evil. They're their father the devil. Look at eight thirty seven. My word has no place in you. Talking about the effects of the word and the correlation between fruit bearing. And the difference the word makes, he says they hate him because he says my word. They were proud. They thought they knew his word. They thought they understood his word. They thought they were doing the works of his word. And he tells them my word doesn't have any place in your heart. Uh, look what he says about 847, even bolder. He who is of God hears God's word. Therefore, this is 847. You don't hear because you're not of God. Wow, they thought they were God's chosen people. They thought they were the only chosen people. But he says, you are not of God. Just because you have all the ordinances and all these things, you don't apprehend it by faith, but you try to apprehend it by works. And uh, as we saw in Romans, pastor went over over again to us. What else does he tell them? He says, you're not of God. He told them in 1027, he told them, he said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And he said, you're not my sheep. Can you imagine all the metaphors of being sheep herders all their life, from Amos, the sheep herder, to the, the, the Old Testament prophets, and David was a sheep herder. You are not my sheep. Can you imagine what he told them? And then in 644, the last thing he tells them, uh, you talk about putting a stake in their heart. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father sent, who sent me draws them. So he takes away their pride, their arrogance, 
they're, 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 they think they have a right to God and the exclusive on God. And he tells them they cannot come to God unless come to him unless the Father draws him. And then he tells them they love darkness rather than light. Can you imagine how that went over to the Jewish audience and how it goes over to the world today? That's why they hate Jesus. That's why they hate Jesus. They hate His exclusive claim that He is who He is. He's God. He hates that He's the only way. They hate. They hate Him. And so we're not to be surprised because we're not of this world that's going to hate us. And then, uh, and then the last thing I want to talk about, time always ends on me, uh, uh, why He tells them this at this time. Why this dissertation... Why this uh, this comment about the world hating us? Because he knows verse 16, verse 1 is coming. He says to them, he tells they're going to be hated. He warns them they're going to be hated. He tells them the Holy Spirit is going to come to comfort them when they're hated. And look what he says in 16, 1. I've spoken all this to you that you should not be made to stumble. Jesus knows that in 12 hours... When he dies, they're going to be attacked mercilessly by the enemy and by the world. And the word stumble means specifically the world's going to set a trap for you. The word stumble means to have a trap set for. So Jesus says, I'm telling you this now. I'm warning you this now. I'm telling you about the word and the friendship and the abiding now because... The world is going to set a trap for you. And the world wants you to stumble and fall. But I am greater than the world. And he's going to talk about all these things later. But he warns them because he doesn't want them to stumble. He doesn't want to destroy their witness. He doesn't want them to be disillusioned and discouraged. And so in love, he warns them, the world's going to set a trap for you. And he wants us to be aware of that trap. And then uh, we'll talk about the rest of that uh, later on. Any comments or questions as we get into uh, next week, we'll talk about the specific work of the Spirit, about the righteousness of Christ and uh, conviction, those type of things. Comments or questions?